You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. It's increasingly recognized that symptoms of heart disease are different for men and for women, but it appears that we're often slower to recognize heart disease in women, resulting in some important differences in early treatment and in outcomes. How can we as providers help narrow this gender gap? And where can we do a better job of encouraging women to be aware of cardiac concerns specific to women? Our guest today is Dr. Rita Redberg, Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine and Director of Women's Cardiovascular Services at the UCSF National Center for Excellence in Women's Health. Welcome, Dr. Redberg. Glad to be here, Dr. Wright. I wonder if we might even start at the very beginning, at the biology. What have you learned about the difference in women's hearts or arteries and men's? We know something about the epidemiology mainly that women are on average 10 years older than men when they first develop symptoms of heart disease. We know some about the biology in that, well, first of all, of course, women in general are smaller. Women are not just small men, but we know that some of the differences we see are related to the fact that women's arteries are smaller, our body size is smaller, which means that We have to consider that when we're dosing all kinds of medications, including cardiac medications. But then we also see things like women are much more likely to have complications related to procedures than men are, which may be related to smaller size or may be related to other things. Some of it is related to that women have more bleeding than men do. They have more bleeding just in general, and they have more bleeding when they're put on a lot of the medicines we use to try to prevent clotting and platelet aggregation. So, for example, aspirin or clopidogrel or some of the other medications that women are on, they're about 50% more likely than men to have a bleeding problem. So those are all things we've just learned really in the last 10 years and are still exploring the science and the biology behind those differences. And there are differences in plaque also in the distribution of plaque in coronary disease? Well, that's right. They say women tend to be more lumpy-bumpy, and a lot of that kind of very interesting look at differences in distribution in plaque has been done by Noelle Berry-Murs and her group, well, the whole WISE study, the Women's Ischemic Syndrome Evaluation, where they've actually been looking inside arteries and looking at the differences between men's arteries and women's arteries. And so I think we're going to continue to learn a lot more about what the difference is in inside, and then the next step would be, does that translate into we should be treating men or women differently? Although right now, most of our recommendations for women are going to be the same as they are for men, even though we are starting to learn these really interesting things about what the vessels look like. Well, and Rita, before we get to the treatment, what you just said is so important, is that there may be a greater overlap in perhaps the way the disease presents itself than we've stated lately. I guess where I'm going is, for a long time, we didn't know that there was much of a difference. Then the spotlight seemed to be shown on women, and we portrayed this as a very different disease presenting differently. But having taken care of a lot of men and women, sometimes the symptoms are pretty similar. That's right. You're absolutely right. A lot of times the symptoms are pretty similar, and certainly 
you know, chest pressure or kind of a vise tightening around your chest is still the most common symptom for women presenting with heart disease as it is for men. And perhaps you could explore for the audience what are some of the symptoms in addition to that vice-like chest discomfort that women might complain of? So first, you know, we look for things that occur mostly with stress, either physical or emotional. And besides the kind of chest pressure, that would be shortness of breath, sometimes nausea, we see not just discomfort that occurs in the chest area, but it could be your left arm, neck, sometimes lower than that. But again, the further we get away from the classic description of chest pressure coming on with exertion and going away with rest, the less likely it is to be due to your heart. But that just means less likely. It doesn't mean it isn't. And that's really where the challenge of diagnosing heart disease in women as well as in men comes in, is knowing when to be concerned about symptoms and when we can be reassured that these are very unlikely to be related to a heart problem. And so a part of that is knowing baseline risk. So as I said earlier, women are um, on average 10 years older than men. So even if we're talking to 50-year-old women, the incidence of heart disease is much lower than for a 50-year-old man, which means that a symptom of chest discomfort is less likely to represent heart problem. But it could be. By the time we get to age 65 or 70, the incidence of uh, heart disease is pretty similar for women and for men. But practically speaking, what that means is I have a lower threshold for ordering some kind of stress testing in a 50-year-old woman if I'm not sure about her symptoms because it is a little harder to make the diagnosis. And I want to get into the testing because I know this is an area where research is beginning to help us a great deal, and it's been an under-researched population certainly in the past. But before we get there, please review the risk factors for coronary artery disease. Sure. So the main risk factors are actually the ones that are in our most commonly used, the Framingham risk score. And so age is your main risk factor, and that's obviously not modifiable. So we tend to focus on the ones that we can do something about, and those are uh, blood pressure, lipids, and we look at uh, total cholesterol, LDL and HDL. Smoking is still the number one preventable cause of heart disease in the United States, and the presence of diabetes is a risk factor. And diabetes is another risk factor that is considered to be a little more powerful for women than it is for men, meaning that a woman with diabetes, we say, it kind of removes the sex advantage that women have. So it takes away that 10-year advantage we have in presenting with heart disease. I think that's because diabetes tends to cluster with other risks like obesity, which is fast approaching. Smoking is the number one preventable cause of heart disease. But diabetes is clustering with obesity, which goes with high blood pressure and um, hypercholesterolemia. So really, the risk factors for women are the same as the risk factors for men. It's just that the age of onset in women is a little higher. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, with our guest today, Dr. Rita Redberg, Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. We're discussing issues of treatment and outcomes for women with heart disease. So, Rita, talk to us about the way to evaluate a a patient. Let's let's talk about a woman whose symptoms are suggestive, uh, certainly not definitive. So it picks up your pulse a little bit when you listen to her, but it's your pulse is not racing. <laughs> the 
good way to describe it, <laughs> to take our own pulse when deciding. And, you know, and I think we probably go through the same kind of algorithm for men. You know, should I order a test or not? And and as I said, for women, my threshold is a, lo- a little bit lower for ordering an exercise test. And I do, you know, when I'm thinking about doing a stress test, I certainly try to order an exercise test because in addition to the, you know, EKG information, you're going to get the information of how many minutes is that woman able to walk on a treadmill? Because we also know that fitness or how many minutes you go on a treadmill is very predictive of your chance of dying from any cause, both cardiovascular related and other things in the next 10 years. And so it's nice to get that prognostic information if someone can get on a treadmill and do an exercise test. You know, of course, pharmacologic testing is also accurate for women as well as it is for men, for people that can't exercise. But if someone can get on a treadmill, you'll get more information, particularly in terms of prognosis. So for the woman where I'm kind of thinking, I mean, if she is in her 40s, it would have to be a great story for me to order a stress test because the chance of coronary disease is just really low. And the problem is that in that age group, you're much more likely to get a false positive than a true positive. And so you really have to consider how, how well do the tests work and you know, we know in general our testing isn't quite as accurate in women as it is in men, particularly treadmill testing alone. That's really true when we're looking at women with a low pre-test probability, meaning basically women in their 40s and even 50s. And so when I do order um, exercise testing in middle-aged women, I'm much more likely to start with an exercise imaging test, like an exercise echo. Because the likelihood is, if you did a standard treadmill in a low-risk person with a a suggestive story, otherwise you wouldn't be doing the test at all, you'd likely be sitting down with her after the treadmill explaining a higher-level test, a nuclear or a stress echo. Exactly. And so at that point, we haven't saved anything by starting with the kind of simpler, less expensive test because we're still ordering a second one. And then we've kind of raised the anxiety level that there was a positive test. I was going to say, no matter how you try to explain the non-specific EKG changes you might have seen, that individual is going to feel that something is not only wrong, it's more wrong than it was before she started the treadmill. Well, exactly. And, you know, I think that's why it's really important to consider if you're going to order a test and then what test you're going to order. Because you're right, once you start down that path, you certainly raise the suspicion in that patient's mind that you're worried enough to have ordered a test, which is probably justified, but... That's why I try to pick the tests that will give us the most accurate answer most efficiently. And Rito, just in terms of testing men and women, what differences have been observed in recent literature about the way we test? Sure. Well, I mean, we know there are differences in referral patterns so that women seem still slightly less likely to get referred for stress testing or, or less likely to refer for testing in general and that women are less likely to be referred on for um, invasive coronary angiography after positive stress testing, although I think those differences between women and men are starting to disappear in terms of referral patterns. But as you were alluding to earlier, we also know that particularly treadmill testing alone is not as accurate for middle-aged women as it is for men, and that you can really improve your accuracy by starting out with exercise imaging. And so we tend to favor, and I personally tends to order exercise echoes in middle-aged women because it avoids the nuclear. 
and the radiation, but either test is certainly accurate and would give you important information. And let's pursue on. Let's say that your patient does have an abnormal stress test, and you would then, I assume, refer to someone or to perform an angiogram if they had a highly positive abnormal stress test. If that's the case, then what do we know about treatment of women with angioplasty? You mentioned the referral, perhaps reduced referral rate based on gender. What do we know about treatment with angioplasty or bypass surgery? So we know that the early complication rate in particular is still higher in women than it is in men, and that's true for um, certainly true for angioplasty or denting for cutaneous coronary intervention, and it's certainly true for bypass surgery. You know, it does appear that the one-year rates are now pretty similar for women as, as well as they are for men. For bypass surgery, particularly for younger women, Viola Vaccarino and her colleagues and other groups have reported much higher, three times as high operative mortality for women in the less than 50 group for bypass surgery than for men. And that is still not really explained. You know, it doesn't actually change our recommendation in terms of certainly women with, you know, left main disease still get referred for bypass surgery. But it is an area that we hope to understand better what's going on there. And that's one of the things I was thinking of when we were talking earlier about that perhaps women are smaller and have more complications for that reason, that it's technically more difficult to do bypass. There's been some data suggesting women are less likely to get internal mammary grafting, and maybe that's why success rates aren't as high. Rita, with these differences, and and I did hear you very clearly that you have observed perhaps a decrease in the difference between treatments in women and men, but with the differences we've observed so far, what are the directions of research? What are the top burning questions that you think need to be answered at this point? To me, I think a really important question is, you know, what's leading to the differences in procedural morbidity and mortality? I mean, that data I referred to on the bypass from Vaccarino is almost 10 years old now, and I don't have a lot better explanation for it now than we did when it came out. And the same with the bleeding differences. I think people are now starting to look at bleeding differences and starting to look into genetics of the coagulation cascade and see whether that explained why women were more likely to bleed than men. But I think the area of why women are bleeding more and why women are having more procedural complications is one that we could expect to see a lot of improvement in patient outcomes if we were better able to understand what was driving those differences. We've been learning more about the aspects of heart disease in women with Dr. Rita Redberg. Dr. Redberg, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.